morning. Um, we are in Daniel chapter seven, it's where we where we are at. Um, and I'll just say that Daniel chapter seven and eight in particular, and even in the chapter nine, they're substantive chapters in regard to eschatology, end times, and, and those kinds of things. Um, and as we dive into them this morning, I sort of want to do some introduction, uh, lay a foundation for good understanding as we progress uh, through this this chapter um, and just make sure that we are understanding what's happening here. Um, and so you'll remember in Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar had his vision of the man uh, with the golden head and the arms and the chest of silver and the, uh, the middle of the next material, brass, bronze, and the, the feet and legs of iron and clay. And each one of those represented a kingdom, represented some nation. And we worked through that just a little bit. And in Daniel 7, and actually in Daniel 8 as well, we have this vision that Daniel has. And there are four beasts, and we're going we're to read this here in a moment, there are four beasts and those beasts, and we know this because we have an interpretation given in Daniel chapter 7. We don't have to go and try and interpret or fit things in here. We're going to spend some time there, but we know that, what, that those things each represent a king or a kingdom, each beast. And so there's no guess about that. There isn't anything that we have to uh, figure out necessarily. Um, I'm of the opinion that the four beasts represent the same four, nearly the same four uh, kingdoms as we saw in Daniel chapter two. Um, so we have the, the Babylonian empire, we have the Medo-Persian empire, and we have the Grecian empire, and then the fourth beast. And we're going to spend some time talking about the fourth beast uh, next week, uh, because that's, that's a substantial thing to understand. And I want to posit to you a I don't want to say alternative uh, interpretation, but a uh, consistent, what I feel like is a very consistent interpretation uh, based on what we see in the Old and the New Testament. And so we'll talk about that more next week. But we have these kingdoms represented, and it's really a vision of nations. That's what Daniel sees. Um, and, and so for this chapter, what I want to do, there are some of the objectives that I want to have and try to meet number one, and this is primarily what we're going to do today, is lay a foundation for good hermeneutics, which is the science, the study of interpreting scripture. So that's going to be the thing that we want to focus on. That's what today is mostly about, is laying that foundation. And then we also want to identify key themes and characters. There are not a lot of characters here in this chapter, and there's really only one theme. And we're going to identify that theme this morning. The characters, in addition to Daniel, and the one that gives the interpretation are the beasts. So, so there you have it. Those are the characters, and there's not a lot to, to get from there. The, the other thing that I want to do is reap the encouragement that is intended in the passage. And that will come become more clear as we lay a foundation here uh, about what this is about. So reap the encouragement of the intended passage. Daniel chapter 7 and really a lot of prophetic uh, looking forward to things that are yet unfulfilled in scripture 
fall into the category, the genre of apocalyptic literature. Now, when we think of apocalypse, we think of end of the world scenario. We think of, you know, Yellowstone erupting and, and filling half the country with ash and, you know, nuclear winters. And we, we think of apocalypse. We think of the end of time. But that isn't what the word means. In, in the Greek, what it means is to uncover or reveal. So it's like seeing the true nature of something that you couldn't see before. Right? Maybe here we have an understanding, we have some, some outline, so to speak, but, but here it is. This is it put before us. So in scripture, when we get into the Bible and we're talking about apocalypse, it's when God pulls back the curtain to show what is happening from the divine perspective. That's what apocalyptic literature is in scripture. And I want to look at a couple of examples. I want to look at three examples this morning uh, of apocalyptic literature that we may not have considered as such. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. Now, in this chapter, and it should be familiar to most of us, but we have Isaiah. And beginning in verse one, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I also saw the Lord, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a high throne, lifted up and his train filled the temple. Okay, so here is Isaiah and God has given him this vision. In essence, he's pulled the curtain back to show him what is really happening. So he sees him in his throne, high and lifted up, his train fills the temple and above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his feet, and with two he covered his, uh, his face, and, the two, and with two he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. So we see, we, we see this scene. This is true. This is the reality all the time. God is holy. His presence is glorious. It is a wonderful thing, but, but, in, but we don't always see it. And here God pulls it back. He reveals it to Isaiah. And Isaiah is struck. He says, woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The revealing, the pulling back of the, of the curtain, letting him see from a divine perspective what the reality is, affects Isaiah. Here he sees God in his holiness. He hears the proclamation of God's holiness by these seraphim, and he realizes that I am a man of unclean lips, that I am a man that is in desperate need of reconciliation. And we find th th this is where the coal is taken and he's cleansed. And he says, God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah responds, here am I, send me. This is apocalyptic literature. We wouldn't normally think of it that way because we interpret apocalypse completely and solely in the realm of eschatology or end times. 
But when we put it into a biblical context, when we look at what the word means, anytime God pulls this back, this is what happens. This is apocalyptic. When Paul, another example, is on the road to Damascus, God, Jesus Christ appears to him, and we have him struck blind. We have him falling down as he sees the reality of who he was persecuting in the church that he was persecuting, and now he's called to be the apostle to the Gentiles. It's apocalyptic. It's revelatory to Paul. This is the reality. Jesus Christ, whom you've slain, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Maybe not the most substantive example of apocalyptic literature, but one of my favorites is in 2 Kings, if you'll turn there with me. 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. So we have Elisha. And uh, the, the, the king of Syria is warring against Israel. Um, and anyway, Elisha ends up surrounded. Okay, here he is. He's surrounded by enemies. And, and in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, we have this little snippet of apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. It says, when the servant of the man of God, and that being Elijah, was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots, and his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do? In other words, have you seen that we are surrounded? Have you seen the multitude of soldiers, the horses and the chariots, everyone that has come against us? And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. Well, excuse me, verse 16. He answers his servant, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And then Elisha prays and he says, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. So here he is, and he real, he's brought to realize through this apocalypse event, this revelatory event, that, hey, the reality is, just as Elisha said, greater are they that are with us, greater are the hosts of heaven, these flaming chariots and horses, than those who surround us that we can see naturally. This is apocalyptic literature. These are examples. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's an example of apocalyptic literature. Here is his glory revealed to Peter, James, and John. When we begin to think of apocalyptic literature in that context, in a more biblical sense, it changes the way that we have to understand it. Because it has a purpose, and its purpose is not solely to give us information about what is yet to come. The objective of apocalyptic literature is to encourage or challenge with revelation of divine perspective. That's why God does it. That's what it is for. Elisha's servant was encouraged. 
He was challenged to faith, to trust in the Lord, because greater are they that are with us. Paul was challenged. Paul was encouraged to come to faith in Jesus Christ, period, and to stop persecuting and to pick up the mantle of the apostles of the Gentiles. Isaiah was encouraged and challenged to move forward as God had called him. And here in our passage this morning, there is encouragement to be reaped. And that's one of the objectives that we want to make sure that we have dealt with. Because as much as there is yet fulfillment coming, coming things looking forward to happening in Daniel chapter 7, we can reap some of the same encouragement. There are some key characteristics as well of apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature. Number one, it is full of symbolism. Full of symbolism. And it's key to understanding the symbolic language is the context of scripture. If you look, if you go and you look at apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature, you, you look at what is there, especially in these prophetic senses, like we find in Daniel chapter 7. And we see these symbols, we see these metaphors used to bring about clarification. The, 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 the key to understanding it, to unpacking the symbolism, is the context of Scripture. This progressive revelation in design patterns. And that's a key, in my opinion, that's a key to understanding the fourth beast, which is really the only one we need to worry about, if we're honest, because it's the only one yet to happen. But this progressive revelation in design patterns. These are things that God has revealed that he's, that he's given as indications. We're going to look at some of those this morning, some of this symbolism. The other thing is it is assumed by the author, by God himself, it is assumed that the reader, you and I, can follow the symbolic thread throughout Scripture. It is a characteristic. God says, listen, you're not going to understand what I just said, what I just symbolized to you, what metaphor I just gave example of, unless you can follow the thread of the symbolism throughout Scripture. And we have to be careful in doing that we, because we don't want to infer upon things, symbolism, or a thread of, of design that isn't really there. Okay. And, and as we go through, as I said, the, the first three beasts, we're going to talk about them a little bit this morning, but, but really only briefly because they've happened. They've happened. It's finished. And so there isn't a symbolic thread necessarily for those three beasts, but there is for the fourth. We're going to talk about that next week. The key theme of this chapter the key theme of Daniel chapter 7, the big takeaway, the point that God wants us to catch, is the ultimate subjection of all of the enemies of God and the restoration of creation. And this is symbolized in the deliverance of Judah and the restoration of Israel. Because here's Daniel, and this means something to him specifically in the context that he is in. 
And there's this looking forward to and this deliverance. And he's telling him, in some respect, Daniel, listen, these kingdoms are coming to an end. I've told you that this is a temporary bondage, a temporary exile. And so in the end, you are delivered. But more than that, Daniel, look forward to something else. The key theme here in this chapter, I'm going to read it again, the ultimate subjection of all of the enemies of God, all of them, and the restoration of creation symbolized in the deliverance of Judah and the restoration of Israel. That's the key theme. That's the big picture. That's the takeaway. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Let's read verses 18 through 22. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who is subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. Here we have Paul writing something, looking forward to this redemption of creation. And, and that redemption of creation happens at the manifestation of the sons of God, which is you and I, which are the people, of uh, the saints. It, this is yet to come. And the way we know that it is yet to come is because Jesus Christ is not ruled and reigned, and we don't have a new heavens and a new earth. That is yet to come. We have this expectation and this hope of restoration. Something yet to come, something that is promised, something that we get to look forward to and find comfort and hope in. Even in the midst of this, he says, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He doesn't say, listen, it's all going to be pie in the sky. There may be persecution and hardship and sufferings and those things that we deal with. But he says it doesn't even compare. The hope, the expectation, the joy that we look forward to is so far above what we may experience in this life. Turns me to Revelation 19. Revelation chapter 19. In Revelation 19, we have, uh, well, we'll read it. It's, let's begin in verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he does judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies 
next to verse 13, just put John chapter one. There you go. If you're curious about who we're talking about, in the beginning was the word, the word of God. And the armies which were with which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his vesture on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of all of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and then that worshiped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of burning fire with brimstone and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. What we read here is the coming of Jesus Christ to wage war against those who are opposing him. And in my estimation, this is, an, this is a confirmation, and we're going to talk about this next week, of who this fourth beast is. But right, the key theme is this ultimate subjection of all of the enemies of God. And here we see that Jesus Christ comes, there a war is made, and the the beast is overcome. The people who have gathered themselves to him, those allies, his armies are conquered and destroyed. So much so that the angel says to the fowls of the air, listen, come and eat the flesh of all of these. And they're thrown into the lake of burning, a uh, fire burning with brimstone. There's a complete destruction of the enemies of God. it's cliche, but it, but it is true, right? That we, we look at these things and as we, as we get into talking about some of these things next week in more detail, there is an angst that we as believers feel because we do have hope. We do have expectation, but we also know that there is heartache and persecution and hardship that we will experience as a result of those coming against the people of God and against ultimately against him. And as Jesus said himself, they persecuted the prophets, they're going to persecute you. And so there's this, there's this pull for believers and that we, we look forward to, we have that hope and that expectation, but if we're honest, we don't really want to go through the hard stuff. Now, I'm not talking about the wrath of God or, or facing punishment or anything like that. Uh, scripture is clear that in Christ, we are spared that wrath. But it doesn't mean that we aren't in the battle. I'm convinced that we are in the battle, that the church has been in the battle since Jesus' time. 
And in many respects, we've lost a lot of balance, which is completely consistent with what we read in scripture. We'll talk about that. The fourth beast, he's given victory over the saints of God. Uh, there it is. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I will make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. I will make all things new. And as we go through, and really in many respects, the rest of chapter 21, and even partially into chapter 22 of Revelation, discusses the new heavens and the new earth. The redemption of all things. We talk about our life being hid with Christ in the heavenlies. That the reality of our position in Jesus Christ is our justification, our righteousness, as declared by God. And that being sure and unshakable. We also talk about the reality that we live in a world that is corrupted by sin, and therefore we, have, we feel and we experience the effects of sin in our lives and in the lives of those that we are concerned and care about. And God says, listen, I am going to make all things new. When I restore everything, we talked about it this morning in Sunday school, it won't happen anymore. Our struggle with sin will be dealt with, will be gone, we will be... The reality of our position in Christ, that righteousness, will become the reality of our physical existence at the same time. The world that we live in at that point will no longer be corrupted by sin. There, won't be, there, there will be no more effects of sin in anything around us. And we look forward to that with expectation and hope and joy because that is deliverance in the fullest. We have deliverance here in this life. We have deliverance and eternal life granted to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And we look forward to yet the fulfillment of all that is promised. The key theme is the ultimate subjection of all of the enemies of God and the restoration of creation. And that's symbolized by the deliverance of Judah from their exile in Babylon and the restoration, because when they go back, there's no longer Israel and Judah, there's one nation again. Now let's talk about context. Turn with me to Daniel chapter seven, verse one, context. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. And I'll just pause there for a moment, okay? One thing, Daniel is criticized by, by some as being written after the fact. That it was written, uh, there are those who would suggest that it is written during the time of the Maccabees, and in between uh, the New and the Old Testament in that era, uh, here, Daniel says, listen, in the first year of Belshazzar, God tells us more than once when this was written. He tells us, and he clearly established it to be written in the time of the Babylonian Empire. The reason they criticize it and the reason they put it there is because of the accuracy of the prophecy that is in it. And they say it can only be as accurate as it is because Daniel was looking back at something that had already happened. 
which completely removes it from divine inspiration, which completely removes it from scripture period, whose authority are we going to count on? It should be no surprise to us that if God is going to give prophecy, that it would be extremely accurate. He knows the beginning from the end. He is omniscient. There is no surprise to him. It also identifies the encouragement that this passage is designed to give us, which is the deliverance from the enemies of God. Whether it's in Daniel's day and Judas specifically being delivered, or whether it's you and I looking forward to, and that's where we're going to go, we're looking forward to this ultimate deliverance. Tapping that key theme that we find in this, in this chapter. And that it extends, as I said, even to the ultimate deliverance in Jesus Christ. Jump with me to verses 13 and 14. Okay, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought near him before him. And they were given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Here in the passage itself, we find this looking forward to a judgment and the destruction of the enemies of God and the establishment of the kingdom of the Son of Man, being Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. I had this all queued up for Christmas last, last week. It was going to be great. We're going to go Isaiah chapter 9. It's where Handel's Messiah is pulled from. Here it is. And we're talking about the establishment of this everlasting kingdom of the Son of Man, of Jesus Christ. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. When was this kingdom established? I'm convinced that based upon this passage and what we read about going forward here, it was established at the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When he was born, when he took on flesh and dwelt among mankind, that's when his kingdom was established. And just as we have this reality that is hidden within heaven, we have this apocalyptic literature that pulls the curtain back and says, listen, this is the reality of the kingdom of God as it exists today. There is strife and conflict and war between the enemies of God and the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So let's talk about symbolism for just a moment. Symbolism. Verse 2, Daniel chapter 7, verse 2. We get into this vision, this dream that he had from God. Daniel spake and said, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea. 
and four beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked, and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Just pause there for a moment. We're going to come back to verse 2. But here we have this first beast, and it was a lion with eagle's wings. And we have this description, right, that here he was. He was a beast, and he was made to stand on his feet, and a man's heart was given to it. Should remind us of Nebuchadnezzar just not very long ago. Where he was made to be like one of the beasts of the field, and then he was, when he humbled himself before the Lord, he was made, brought back to his senses. And in addition to that, don't miss the symbolism here. You know what the chief god, how the Babylonians represented their chief god? A lion with eagle's wings. God is here telling us, and I'm convinced that this is the case, that this first beast was. Babylon. It was that empire. And it's consistent with the interpretation we have in Daniel chapter 2, and it's consistent moving forward. Verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second like a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it, and they said thus unto it, arise, devour much flesh. Now, don't be confused. This isn't media. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. This is the combination of the two. We get that from Daniel chapter 6. In many respects, we have, uh, when Daniel's being put into the lion's den, it's the law of the Medes and the Persian can't be altered. Right? That is what is happening. That is who is coming. That is who is taking over Babylon. That is the next kingdom that we find in uh, the progression through Nebuchadnezzar's vision in Daniel chapter 2. I'm convinced it's what's represented here. And there, there's symbolism even within this being a uh, bear rising up on one side, the, all of those things. We're not going to go into it. And the reason we're not going to go into it is because it's history. We don't need to go into it. It's happened. It's done. It's finished. That's a kingdom long gone. Next. Verse 6, and after this, I behold, and lo, another like a leopard, which had on his back four wings of a fowl. The beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. Okay, this is a description of the Grecian Empire, and it's compared to a leopard. Um, and that's understood by the audience to be fast. I mean, that's, that is the idea. That is the symbolism that is being given there. Um, if you look at Habakkuk 1.8, there's a description there, uh, and it's comparing, hey, listen, these horses are faster than leopards. There's that, that, that comparison being made here. And so what's being symbolized here is the, the progression of the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great being so quick. I mean, he, he conquered all the... <laughs> all the empires around him, and then some, and he did so in such a short span of time. And as we get into chapter 8, we find that the, the uh, and, and not, not just inferred, but in chapter 8, we have it stated implicitly that the Grecian Empire is going to destroy and take over the Medo-Persian Empire. 
as we look at these things successively, which is the way we should interpret them, uh, which is consistent throughout Daniel, we find that to be the case. So we're drawing these conclusions from elsewhere with the perhaps the exception of the Medo-Persian Empire. Other, with the exception of it being sequential. Then we have verse seven. After this, I saw on the night visions and behold a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth. It devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. Now, if you could see the slides that I had, when we get to the fourth beast, I have a question mark. Historically, the interpretation is Rome. And while I think there's some credence to that, it also doesn't fit. And the reason it doesn't fit is because if you get into Matthew chapter 24, here's Jesus, and he's talking about the abomination that makes desolate, uh, the, the abomination of the temple. And he's talking about it as something that is yet to happen. And those who would say it is, there, there's two camps. One that says it's Rome and that, that it is yet to happen. And we're going to talk about that. And I, I, at this point, I disagree with that interpretation. And we're going to, that's what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to spend time talking about the fourth beast. But there are also those who would say, no, the fourth beast is the, 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 the Grecian empire. Um, and that the, Abomination desolation was fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes when he desecrated the temple and offered a, a pig there. The problem is Jesus came after that. And if he's talking about a future event, it couldn't have already happened. So, so there's a problem there. And the other thing that it does is it makes all of the, the looking forward to the prophetic uh, establishment of a millennial reign of Christ, his second coming, all those things, it, it becomes dependent upon the work of man to, to spread the kingdom, which is not what we read in scripture. What's going to happen? Well, people are going to hate God more and more and more. So much so that it says we're going to keep teachers, even amongst the believers, to ourselves, and we'll preach things that we want to hear, not the things that God has actually said. So we take a consistent interpretation. We have to remove that as an option. The other thing that those who would say, listen, it's Rome, and, and yeah, the abomination of desolation has yet to happen, they talk about a revived Roman Empire, which I think is odd because the only empire that's ever mentioned again as we get into other prophetic end times passages in scripture, whether it's Revelation or anywhere else, is Babylon. They don't mention Rome. And by the time that those things were being written, they could have named Rome by name because they knew the empire. So I removed that as an option. As we're going to talk about that fourth beast, and I'm going to, like I said, pause it to you. Pause it means to throw out there. Here is something to consider, something to think about that I believe is a very consistent interpretation. Next week. So we have this symbolism, we have these four beasts, they represent, and how do I know this? Because uh, as we get into um, verse seven, 17, excuse me, 
Daniel asks for an interpretation. It says, these great beasts, which are four, are four kings which shall rise out of the earth. They're represented. There's symbolism being, being here. And, and so as we get into this and we talk about this, we're not going to spend a lot of time on the first three beasts. We don't need to. They've come and they've gone as empires, as nations. They've come and gone. We're going to focus on the fourth beast. We're going to focus on the ancient of days. And we're going to focus on the son of man. We're going to focus on those things because they are yet to come in some respect, though they may have already started. And I'm convinced they already have. I'm going to do my best to clearly state that. And then you guys are going to have to be Bereans. I will tell you that it is a non-normative non-classical interpretation. All right, back to verse two, Daniel chapter seven, verse two. I wanted to read the vision, get that in front of us, see this symbolic language, those kinds of things, lay out just that little bit. So Daniel says, first of all, I see in my vision by night and behold the four winds of the heavens strove upon the great sea. Okay, wind from the four winds, the north, south, east, and west, wind from every corner of the earth represent the completeness of the struggle. Does that make sense? It, it, it's coming from every direction. There is nothing that is that is removed itself or separated itself from this struggle that we're going to talk about. The completeness of the struggle. The sea represents the universality or the totality of mankind. And I'm basing that because in verse 17, it says that, hey, these four kings arise out of the earth. Here it says, they rise out of the sea. Both of them are symbolic of mankind. These kings that are going to come, these nations that arise, are kingdoms and nations of men. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about that a little bit next week. It's from the sea that the beasts come, though sovereignly established. And I want to hammer that point home. They are sovereignly established. Who did God? Tell, God told Jeremiah that he was given, that Nebuchadnezzar had been given dominion, that he was going to be the king, that he, that the animals and the lands and all those things, God had given him. Even though it was oppression to God's people, his corrective hand upon them, it was sovereignly established to bring about his will and purpose. And in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, we know that there is no power, no higher power, nothing that, unless God has established it. So even though these kingdoms are going to rise up from amongst men, they are sovereignly established. God is allowing them, God is permitting them and using that for his end. Don't miss that. John Walford, Bourd. Uh, is considered to be one of the foremost uh, scholars when it comes to uh, end times uh, interpretation of scripture, he says this, God often used the winds as a means to attain his end, and he gives a list, a slew of references. Of more than 120 references in the Bible to wind, more than 90 in the Old Testament and 30 in the New Testament, well over half are related to events and ideas which reflect the sovereignty and power of God. In Daniel, wind is uniformly used to represent the sovereign power of God, which is the viewpoint of the book. 
right? So here is God pulling the curtain back. Daniel, I want you to get my perspective. This is the reality. This is what's happening. This is what's coming. And part of what it means for you, Daniel, is deliverance from Babylon. And not only that, just as I have told you through the prophet Isaiah, Cyrus, who I named uh, long before he was ever born, is going to be the guy who lets you go, who rebuilds Jerusalem, who all of those things. It comes to pass, just as he says. And who is the ruler of the Persian Empire? Cyrus. Right? Who succeeds the Babylonian Empire? The Persian Empire. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. <clears throat> we could really read the entire psalm, but we're just going to read the first four verses. Psalm chapter 2, verse 1. It says, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves... And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Right? This is the proclamation. This is what these kings and these people are saying. We're coming against the Lord. He's put us under bondage. I don't want to live that way, whatever it might be. They're faced with the reality of their sinfulness, and they're st standing there saying, we're going to put this off of us, which should sound familiar in modern times. It may not be phrased exactly this way, but it is exactly what we find people doing. And then as we come to the next verse, he that sits in the heavens, he, God himself that sits in the heavens, shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Turn me to Romans chapter 1 for just a moment. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, because it really echoes the same theme that we read in Psalm chapter 2. This declaration that we don't want anything to do with the Lord. We, we are aligning ourselves against him. And here in Romans chapter 1, while it may not be articulated in a political sense, it is articulated in a personal and an individual sense. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. Right, just pause there, right? We have those described here who are holding, they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The condemnation that is entered into the world that we read about in John chapter 3 that Jesus talked about when his discussion with Nicodemus, this is what they're trying, this is what they feel themselves under in Psalm 2. This is what they're trying to escape. This is why we're aligning ourselves against God. We don't want him to exist. We don't want the reality of our sinfulness to be exposed. We don't want the ramifications and the consequence of that truth. And so we're going to suppress that truth. We're going to align ourselves against God. 
We're going to work to change those things. Those things that God says are bad, we're going to say are good. Those things that God says are good, we're going to say are bad. But they are without excuse. God has revealed to them even his eternal power in Godhead. We have a discussion here in, in the next chapter that talks about God writing his law on our heart, that conscience that he has given us, this understanding of what is right and what is wrong. He continues on in verse 21 of Romans chapter 1, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Whatever form they put there is an effort to eliminate God from the picture. Remember that as we got into the, the book of Daniel, one of the things that we introduced were, were six purposes of, of prophecy. And remember that two of those, one is to encourage, which is the same purpose as the apocalyptic literature, which Daniel, this clearly is. And secondly, to lay the foundation of the climax of the divine activity in the work of Jesus Christ. We see both of those fulfilled here in Daniel chapter 7. Now, I'm going to close this morning. Like I said, we've, we've got a lot more to unpack here, but we're just trying to lay a foundation. Identify some of those symbolism that we have. This universal uh, coming against God, this strife. God striving with mankind, those where, where these beasts arise from, and it's universal. This isn't something that, this is, this, and it's really a direct commentary on the sinfulness of man, his depravity, our separation from God, our struggle against him, our unwillingness to acknowledge who he is, our need for Christ. And then we have these four beasts that rise up, each representing different kingdoms. And we look at the fourth beast, and that's where we're going to focus next week, being yet fulfilled. The archetype. So an archetype is the original pattern or the model of which all things of the same type are representations or copies. It's the original. Just as there are consistent symbols of the struggle between God and man, resultant from sin. The Bible is full of symbols of the reconciliation of man. Ultimately, God is, is not always going to strive with man, and, and he even says that. His judgment seat is set, and as we get into this, as we read in Daniel chapter 7 about the Ancient of Days, that's God. That's I am. That's he who has always existed. And what does he do? He comes to judge. We talked about just briefly this morning in Sunday school, the, these judgments that, are, that exist. And ultimately, in the end, God is going to judge those who have come against him. He's not always going to strive with man, but there are reasons that he would continue. 2 Peter 3.9, turn there with me for a moment. 
And I'll just, as you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, the context of what is being written about in 2 Peter chapter 3 is the end times. It is this expectation and this looking forward to of the redemption of all of creation and the subjection of all of God's enemies. And the question is, that, listen, here are the holy prophets. They're talking about it, and we're looking forward to it. Where is it? And it's true today, nonetheless, right? We look forward to it. We still have this hope and this expectation. We're looking for the return of Christ. We're looking for that judgment. We're, lo we're looking for those things yet today. And the word of encouragement that God would give to you and I, he says, the Lord is not slack or forgetful or lazy concerning his promises. As some men count slackness, but is long suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God isn't always going to strive with man. Judgment is coming. It is established. It has been decreed. It will happen. But God is not unmerciful nor undesirous that even sinful man would come to faith in Jesus Christ. He commended his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. Why would God stay all this? Why would this take so long? Because God is not willing that any should perish. In Luke chapter 2, <clears throat> Luke chapter 2. In verse 8 through 14, Mary and Joseph are in the stable. Jesus Christ has been born. God has taken on flesh, and he's lying in the manger. And there are shepherds in the country around about, abiding in the field, beginning in verse 8, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, fear not. For I behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior, which is Christ the Lord. And if you just take a moment and pause there, here's the, here are these shepherds and they're fearful they are terrified by what's taking place around them the first thing that they say is fear not and why because i'm bringing you good tidings everything that you look forward to the deliverance the hope the, the restoration promised in the coming messiah is here now good tidings of great joy which shall be to all people not just for the nation of Israel, but for Jew and Gentile, for everyone. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, a Redeemer, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. 
What is Jesus the manifestation of to the world? Peace and goodwill toward men. John 3, 17. God did not send his son of the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Ultimately, God's not always going to strive with man. But in the meantime, until the appointed time, until the correct time that God has established since eternity past, he is in the business of redemption. And for those of us, of us, you and I, who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, there's this expectation and this looking forward to and this yearning and desire to see that redemption come to fulfillment. Jesus is the archetype. He is the original pattern of the promised peace between God and fallen men. Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward men appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is what Jesus Christ came to do. In the meantime, from the Grecian Empire to the fourth beast, this is what's happening. The fulfillment of the promise made all the way back in Genesis 3.15 to Adam and Eve at the fall. The proto-evangelion where God promises to destroy the head of the serpent. To redeem and to restore relationship. As we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are reconciled and given that ministry of reconciliation. We take that message to the world around us. The message of justification by his grace. According to the hope of eternal life. Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for your goodness to us. Lord, I thank you that we have the opportunity to gather here, to be engaged in your word. And Lord, as you have taken the time to pull the curtain back, to give us some insight into the divine perspective, the reality of everything around us, because Lord, you are sovereign. God, I pray that we would have hearts that are quick to hear minds that will understand, Lord, that we would be encouraged and challenged by the truths that we uncover in your word. Just as the nation of Israel, just as Daniel was encouraged at the coming deliverance, as the coming looking forward to of all these things, though there was concern, though there was uh, anxiety, so to speak, related to it for Daniel, Lord, ultimately there was this comfort, this reassurance of your faithfulness,
And God, I pray that would be for us. That as we look at the divine commentary on what is yet to come, we might be encouraged. And that it may be for us a roadmap and how we might conduct ourselves and how we might work as part of your kingdom. We praise you and we thank you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we give thanks that we ask this. Amen. Amen.